Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. Thank you for sticking with me while I took a break to catch my breath. Stay tuned to the end of this podcast for where I've landed on how to keep doing everything I love, including this podcast. Today, we continue metamorphoses because that's what I was in the middle of writing when I decided that I needed a um, year-long summer vacation. We are up to book four, and if you thought that Ovid's need to tell one story so that he can tell you another story gets complicated, well, if you haven't read ahead yet, you, you ain't seen nothing yet. As a reminder, before we dive into the plot, I am working from the Humphreys translation. When we last left off, everyone had decided it's better to worship Bacchus than to risk his wrath, and that is right where we pick up in book four. Sure, everyone is worshipping Bacchus, except, of course, for those who aren't, including Minyas' daughters, led by Elkithoe. Bacchus's priest has declared a feast day, and more importantly, a day off. Everyone is to leave off their work, the cleaning, the weaving, the whatever, and come worship everyone. It doesn't matter what your social status is, you are invited to this mandatory celebration. But Alkithoe and her sisters decline, choosing instead to stay home and spin and weave. Oh, and also force their serving women to do the same. Their household opts out. And while the festivities go on outside their walls, they tell each other stories. The first story is that of Pyramus and Thisbe. You may know this one from Shakespeare's retelling in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Pyramus and Thisbe are neighbors somewhere in the east. Their parents hate each other, but their hatred does nothing to quell the love that grows between Pyramus and Thisbe, so the parents build a wall. But there's a chink in the wall through which the young lovers whisper their sweet nothings, and they eventually make a plan to run away together. They'll sneak out and meet at Ninus's tomb, where a mulberry tree grows bearing white berries. Thisbe sneaks out first, and while she is waiting at the tomb, a lion shows up. Thisbe wisely flees, but not before dropping her veil. The lion has eaten a cow or two, and when the lion decides to play with the veil, it is just a big cat after all, the cow's blood winds up on Thisbe's veil. Pyramus arrives. He sees the bloody veil and jumps to the conclusion that a lion has eaten Thisbe. And the only obvious response to this is to kill himself. So he does. And Thisbe comes out of hiding and finds Pyramus, so she kills herself too. And this is why mulberries turn red when they're ripe. Lucano is up next. She tells the story of how Mars and Venus fall in love, even though Venus is married to Vulcan. The sun sees Mars and Venus and tells Vulcan. Vulcan makes a bronze net that is finer than any spider web and traps Mars and Venus in it and calls the other gods to come and see. <laughs> they think it's hilarious. One, Ovid doesn't say who, even wishes he could be caught in such a trap, which, ew, I'm sorry, Venus. Venus decides to get a revenge on the sun because he's the one who told Vulcan about her affair. She makes him fall in love with a girl named Leucothoe. He's so in love that he starts rising earlier and setting later, even in winter. But he can't get close to the girl, so he disguises himself as her mother, Eurynome. And this is wrong on just so many levels. So many levels. Okay, 
Anyway, Clydie, one of Lukathoe's sisters, is jealous because apparently she knows it's really the son and she's in love with him. So she tells her father. And no matter Lukathoe's protestations that she was raped, her father buries her alive as a punishment. The son tries to help, but the best he can do is turn her into frankincense, and as for Clydie, she's turned into a flower and spends her days following the sun with her face. So she is a sunflower, obviously. And that's the story that Lucanoe tells. Some of the women believe it and some don't, but they all agree that Bacchus isn't a real god, and Alkithoe takes up the next role of storyteller. And here's her story. There's this fountain named Selmachus, and she has quite the reputation for making men weak. You see, there's this boy, the son of Mercury and Venus, who the Greeks call Hermes and Aphrodite, which is why the boy's name is Hermaphroditus. At the age of 15, he sets off on adventures and comes upon the pool of water where the nymph Selmachus lives. She falls head over heels. He does not. But Selmachus is more powerful. She manages to capture him and refuses to let go until their two bodies merge into one, a being that is neither man nor woman, but both at once. Hermaphroditus prays to their parents that they will curse the pool where their son was so assaulted, which they do, and that's why any man who touches those waters becomes half a man. And that's the end of Elkithobe's story. And the sisters keep weaving, and the party outside goes on, and it gets late, and then the daughters of Vinyas are turned into bats for their impiety. Now, you would think that that's the end of the book, but no, there's more. Bacchus is finally now recognized in Thebes as the god that he is, and everything is finally peachy keen. Of course it isn't. Remember how Auntie Ino helped raise Bacchus? Well, Juno can't stand her. I'm sure you can figure out why. So off Juno goes to the underworld to enlist the Furies. You may recall that that's where the Furies live. And it takes several stanzas for Juno to reach the Furies because we get descriptions of all of the places and people she sees along the way. But reach the Furies she finally does, and as usual the Furies are more than happy to make some deadly mischief, so off they go. They drive Ino's husband, Athamas, mad. And stop me if this sounds like any other stories from Greco-Roman mythology, Athamas decides that their son is a wild animal and kills it. Ino grabs their other son and runs to a cliff where she jumps off into the sea. The women of Thebes chase after and would jump into the sea too, but they're turned into stone before they get the chance. Now, don't worry about Aino and little Melikerta. Venus turns them into new gods with brand new names. Aino becomes Leucothea, and Melikerta becomes Palaemon. But we're still not done with the House of Cadmus. Cadmus himself is still around. With this latest tragedy, tragedy he gives up. Maybe he shouldn't have killed Mars's serpents all those years ago. I mean, that's when all the trouble began. Since being a snake is clearly as great as being the bee's knees, maybe he should become one too. And so he does. And his wife becomes a snake too, although no one asks her if this is what she wants, and the two of them slither away to live in peace. And you would think that everyone now worships Bacchus, but no, there's still one, King Acrisius. And not only does he deny that Bacchus is the son of Jove, he also denies that Perseus is the son of Jove. Uh, Perseus's mother is Danae, and Jove came to her in the form of a golden rain. 
Anyway, long story short, Perseus goes and gets the Gorgon's head, you know, the one, the one that can turn people into stone. And just so you know, that's not me glossing over what Ovid writes. He doesn't go into detail. Back to the story. Perseus flies over Libya, where drops of blood from Medusa's head fall and turn into snakes, which is why Libya has so many snakes in it. Perseus flies to the western reaches of the world, which you may recall is where Atlas is holding up the sky. Atlas remembers this prophecy that a son of Jove is going to come and steal his riches, also known as an orchard of golden apples, and he is understandably wary of this son of Jove who has appeared on his doorstep. Perseus responds to this poor reception by pulling out Medusa's head and turning the titan into a mountain, and that is how the Atlas Mountains came to be. Perseus then turns east for Ethiopia. Things are not going well in that kingdom. When Perseus arrives, the princess Andromeda has been chained to a rock as a sacrifice via sea monster to the god Amun because her mother has bragged about her beauty. Perseus naturally slays the sea monster, frees Andromeda, and declares his intention to marry her. Her parents are overjoyed that their daughter has been spared, so they invite Perseus to feast, and he tells them all about how he tracked down Medusa. He had to get directions from the daughters of Forcus, who had shared one eye between the two of them. He held the eye ransom until they agreed to help. Then he went to the ends of the world where Medusa wasn't bothering anyone and cut off her head. From her severed neck are born Pegasus and his brother. Then Perseus regales them with the rest of his journeys, but the people want to know more about Medusa, so Perseus explains how she came to be the only gorgon with snakes for hair. She was once incredibly beautiful. She caught Neptune's eye, and he raped her in Minerva's temple, and so Minerva punished Medusa by turning her beautiful hair to snakes. And that's also why Minerva's breastplate bears an image of the gorgon's head to serve as a warning to any others who might cross her. And that is the end of book four. There is just so much that happens in each of these books. My list of notes is quite a list. It's a good thing I make notes because I'd forget what I want to talk about if I didn't make notes as I go along. Ovid tells the story of Vulcan's net, his spider web, if you will, and we saw this story as told by Homer, too. Homer clearly states that the goddesses do not join in the fun, or at least the fun as seen by the gods. It's particularly icky in this telling with the gods wishing they were in Mars's place, but it's unclear where the goddesses are. And I do have to wonder if they just don't fit into the meter of, or if Ovid is having them tacitly approve of this treatment of their fellow goddess. Then we have hermaphroditus, and we could discuss gender fluidity or hermaphroditism, um, but it's interesting that the waters of Salmachus have the ability to change gender, or at least make it more fluid making its victims half man. And this is where I do wish I had some proper scholars to talk about gender fluidity in ancient Greece and Rome. Clearly, this story shows us that it's not just hermaphroditus. And while there is a negative connotation to having been made only half a man, it also shows that people who are outside a gender binary were also recognized in the ancient world. It's also interesting that this only seems to be about men. There's nothing about becoming half a woman. 
And I have more notes, but I'll save a few for the blog and skip ahead to Medusa and her origin story that is shared at the very end of this tale. In Perseus' telling, Medusa is punished by Minerva, and that is a frequent way the story is told. Medusa is raped, and then she is punished for what was done to her. Now, there is the issue of how Minerva could have gone about punishing Neptune, given the fact that they're both immortals, but it is noteworthy, uh, given the long-running rivalry between Minerva and Neptune, that Neptune defiles Minerva's temple and not some other deities. There is an interpretation that Minerva isn't seeking to punish Medusa and instead she's trying to protect her. Um, The only issue with that interpretation is that it's a little too late. So which of the myriad stories stands out to you in book four? Pop over to the blog and share. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and um, maybe a link depending on your platform are in the show notes. And now for the promised update. When I started this podcast, it made sense to have multiple texts going at once. Plays were one day, epics another, myths a third, lots of episodes every week. Uh, However, now that I am gainfully employed and only dropping episodes, oh, about once a month, I think my brain needs to kind of stick with one thing from start to finish. So we are going to set Ovid aside for now and finish the Bibliotheca, which I already am reading in a public domain translation, so I can just read it to you instead of trying to summarize it. Uh, And after that, I'm not sure exactly what we'll move to next. I might come back to Metamorphoses, or maybe we'll, I don't know, read one of the Greek histories, or maybe a little satire. Um, I'm not sure, but that's the direction I'm currently planning to go. Instead of one week of epics and one week of philosophy, and things are going to be a little more, I don't know, is is haphazard the right word? Anyway, once we're done with the Bibliotheca, I'll pick out something I want to read and discuss and do that next. It's not going to be quite as methodical as my original design, but I think this will be much more manageable. And it will also, again, be much less frequent. There's no way I can keep doing this on a weekly basis. And if there is something you'd really like to hear me talk about, just let me know. Uh, drop a comment on the blog, uh, email me, what, whatever. I'm happy, happy to take requests. So with all of that said, in the next episode, we will cover Book 3, Chapter 8 of the Bibliotheca. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.